the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The earth turns, but we don't feel it move. And one night you look up, one spark, and the sky is on fire. The past is the torch that lights our way. Where our fathers have shown us the path, we shall follow. Our faith is the weapon most feared by our enemies. For thereby shall we lift our people up against those who would destroy us. For with great numbers must come great strength and the salvation of our people. Welcome to the main event. Yes, the uh, the the one spark, the one spark that suddenly lights the fire, the sky on fire. I think is out there. I think it's the the Hillary Clinton emails, or maybe it's the Benghazi thing, or maybe it's the ten thousand refugees that that Obama wants to bring in from Syria, or uh, what could it be? There's a, there's too many sparks. I think the sky's on fire. I use that clip from uh, the gangs in New York because I think it's pertinent. And coming up this week, we have the uh, the uh, next presidential debate. On CNN, the top 10, which turns out to be 11 because CNN doesn't have the guts to to draw the line anywhere. Kind of like President Obama and why we're having this problem in Syria right now to begin with. And we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff going on. And and we're going to have a special guest, Larry Elder, on. And we're also going to have our tribute to uh, to 9-11 as this is 9-11 weekend, 14th anniversary. But before we go further, let me introduce myself. My name is Ed Hoffman, President of Wholesale Capital Corporation, your local direct mortgage lender. Located in the city of Marina Valley, also offices in Temecula, Corona, Orange, Downey, and Westlake Village to service all of Southern California for all your real estate financing needs. If you're in, if you're interested in getting involved in any of those fantastic opportunities that are real estate, call me toll free at 855-640-2020, 855-640-2020. And one last time, toll free day or night, 855-640-2020. If you want to uh, get some information, but you don't want to talk on the phone because you're at work and you're stealing time from your boss, wait till your lunch break, go on to edhoffman.net, click on the apply now button, and uh, fill in as much information as you want me to have and let me know how much information you want back. And you'll hear back from uh, either myself or one of my teammates, Randy Sampius, Alex Rojas, Justin Clark, or Matt Bradbury. And we'll get you all the information you need as far as refinancing your house, buying a new house, buying a new, uh, buying a new vacation home, buying an investment property, getting a, kid, getting a kid, uh, house for your kids so you can get them out of your basement. Um, reverse mortgages, any of those products you need, you need some help. Call us 
855-640-2020 or edhoffman.net. If you hear anything you want repeated, you can go also go to edhoffman.net, click on listen to the main event and hear this show and four past shows uh, available to repeat. Or you can also get me on podcast on iTunes or and just search Ed Hoffman and you can subscribe for free or you can go to uh, AM590 The Answer and get the podcast as well. Once again, if you need any real estate financing, if you hear anything that sounds like you and I think the same, call me at 855-640-2020 and you'll be talking to someone with common sense that will help you with your, with your real estate financing. Okay, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ed Hoffman. I tweet about current events all week long, and you can uh, like the show on Facebook. You know, if you don't want to wait till the weekend to hear my hear my opinionated rants, follow me at, at Ed Hoffman on Twitter, or go to our Facebook page, the Main Event Five Ninety, and uh, and you can, I guess, like us. I think that's what you do for the young people technology these days. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm learning as I go. Okay, on the phone with me, my good buddy Larry Elder, uh, now part of the now recently for the past uh, month, uh, part of the back with the Salem uh, Salem uh, family there. Larry, welcome, welcome back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, Thursday night with you and Dennis Prager after the uh, after the uh, the much anticipated CNN. Um, Republican debate Wednesday night to talk about it. Uh, I thought I want, want to uh, make sure everybody knows about it. So if you haven't had a chance to buy tickets, go to AM590 The Answer and uh, come out and listen to uh, Larry and uh, Dennis on uh, Thursday night out at the Riverside Convention Center. Uh, shall we do some predictions today? <laughs> I'll give you one prediction. It's going to be raucous. Uh, Already you're finding a lot of nastiness. Uh, recently, Donald Trump has peed off on Carly Fiorina's looks although he backtracked a little bit and said he wasn't talking about her looks, he was talking about her persona. But when you could do an interview with the Rolling Stone, Ed, and you say, quote, look at her face, close quote, as opposed to look at her persona, it sounds to me like you're talking about her face. Bobby Jindal has, has called him narcissistic and insecure and said anybody who really is insecure doesn't go around telling people how much they, uh, they, uh, they make for money. Uh, he, uh, Donald Trump teed off on, uh, on Ben Carson and said do- doctors don't create jobs. Uh, ben Carson teed back at him and said he doesn't believe that he's much of a man of faith. Uh, so it's starting to get raucous already. I can't wait until the debate. I know it's going to be fun, and I and I really I'm really anxious to hear how uh, how Carly Fiorina uh, comes back. I, you know, and Carly Fiorina always seems to be prepared, educated. She knows she knows what she's talking about on every single. So I haven't seen her get caught flat-footed with her pants down yet. Uh, in any subject, figuratively speaking, um, on anything, on anything, in... I won't, I won't, I won't touch that one. <laughs> we might edit. We might. We might have to edit that part out. Um, but, but the uh, I haven't. I haven't. I'm anxious to see how she comes back because you know, you know, she's going to make some kind of comment in a very classy and very classy way to make him look stupid. Don't you think? Uh, it'll be interesting. You know, when she ran for Senate, I got to tell you, I saw her. Uh, uh, at some forum, and I saw her, uh, you know, conduct herself during the race, and I was not impressed. She lost by ten points, although uh, winning statewide as a Republican in California is, is nearly impossible. Uh, probably anybody would have lost by ten points. Margaret Thatcher probably would have lost by ten points. Uh, that's but she's true. gotten a lot better. She's gotten a lot better as a candidate, uh, and as a woman, I think she has an advantage in attacking Hillary in ways that uh, that guys. 
can't do without coming across as sexist. And I thought she has handled herself with a great deal of class and dignity as Donald Trump has, has gone after her. So um, I think she's improved as a candidate. I think her running uh, the first time, even though she lost, made her a better candidate. Absolutely. And you know what? And you know what? God works. God works in mysterious ways. And I wonder because I saw I saw her speak. I saw her speak at a leadership conference about 2004, I think, maybe 2003. And it was one of these uh, short circuit things, uh, closed circuit things where uh, where Rudy Giuliani and Jack Welch and. Um, Sir Richard Branson. There's a whole list of people that were speaking on leadership and people all around the country were watching it. She was the first speaker. I'd never heard of her. And I said, I don't know who this lady is, but she's awesome. And I'm writing notes mm-hmm. down. And I was totally impressed. And my sister works for uh, for Hewlett Packard, or she did at the time. And I had never even heard of Carly Fiorina. And I was totally impressed. Maybe God wanted, had a higher, maybe God had a higher uh, calling for her. And that's why, because if she, if she had one Senate, she wouldn't be running for president. Well, maybe so, and I am not, repeat, not comparing her to him at all, but uh, remember a guy named Abraham Lincoln ran for Senate in the famous uh, uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates. He lost that race, uh, and then he ultimately became president. So losing a Senate race does not mean uh, so far that your career is over by any means. And certainly Trump's been taking shots at her about Hewlett-Packard. Well, how many people lost jobs? Losing jobs is part of of running a company, in my opinion. And if you pointed out... And as she pointed out, her, her big thing was, was the merger, I believe, with Compact, uh, a merger that uh, in the long run apparently has turned out okay. And during the time that she was presided over Hewlett-Packard, the dot-com boom uh, became a bust, and lots of companies uh, lost their stock value. And so when she defends herself, I think she can do so with some, with some credibility. Absolutely. I think uh, I, I asked my sister what, what she thought about her because she worked there when, when Carly Fiorina was there. And she goes... Uh, she was pretty good, but she just didn't fit in. She didn't. She wasn't having a hard time fitting into the Hewlett Packard Hewlett Packard culture. She couldn't micromanage it correctly, or she couldn't micromanage it. So I forget exactly how she said it, but my wife is a, or my wife. My sister is a is a Democrat, so I don't put much credence in that. Um, but uh, you know what? I, I think she's awesome. I and think- and uh, Harry Harry Truman is a president, although a Democrat, that people admire. Harry Truman was a haberdasher. He ran a men's store, and, and he went bust. Uh, so just because you had a failure, assuming it, it, it was a failure, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you can't be a good president. And we certainly have a president now who never failed at anything because he never did anything. And look, oh, look, never, look at how that turned out. N- never so much as run a hot dog stand. Never really been in the private sector, and it certainly shows. Uh, exactly. So, uh, so we talked about. And how do you, how do you, what, what's your feeling on uh, Ben Carson? Well, I, I saw Ben Carson night before last at a at a fundraiser. I, I, I've not taken a position and I've not made a contribution to anybody during the primary season, uh, as is my custom. But I was invited and I did go. And I, I tell you, Ed, he held these people in this room at a, at a private home uh, in the palm of his hand. Very soft spoken guy. He comes across the same way in an intimate setting as he does uh, on television. Uh, he speaks from the heart. Uh, he speaks directly, uh, and he speaks in a very moving way about why he got into the race, why he thought he would be an effective president, uh, and the obstacles he, he overcame as a child, raised by a single mom, uh, who apparently for a while was uh, was on welfare. And um, uh, he is just a very, very genuine, impressive guy. And I, and I met a number of people who told me that they had never gotten into politics in their lives, let alone uh, gotten actively involved in politics, as were the people in that room, uh, until they, they had met Ben Carson. So he's, uh, he's creating quite a, 
quite, quite an impression. And um, this is a year of outsiders, uh, as, as you know. The top three people uh, right now, according to most polls, are people with no political experience. Donald Trump, Fiorina, uh, and, and Ben Carson. And there's a reason for that. People are, are frustrated. I don't like to use the word angry, uh, but I think there is a great deal of anger at the um, Republican establishment, particularly about uh, at, at Mitch McConnell. Uh, and John Boehner, uh, Republicans feel that we put you guys in the House, we put you guys in the Senate, and you promised you would stop the Obama agenda, specifically Obamacare. And not only have you not stopped it, uh, it's it gotten expanded, it's gotten uh, even more entrenched roots, and people feel double-crossed, especially this ridiculous Iran deal that Senator Corker from Tennessee entered into. Rather than fight and fight and fight and argue that this is a treaty, which would require two-thirds of the Senate, they rolled over and said, okay, we'll let you call it a presidential proclamation or whatever it is, and we'll just have a say in it. And uh, essentially, Obama needs one-third plus one vote. And now I'm hearing Harry Reid is not even going to bring up the thing uh, for a vote. He's going to filibuster it, so he won't even have these people on the record. And so not only did, did Corker get double-crossed, uh, but he's not even getting, getting a vote so that these Democrats are on the record so that down the road, when, uh, and it's not a question of if, but when Iran gets the bomb, and, and God forbid there's a mushroom cloud, uh, we, we, will, we won't even know whose fingerprints are on this deal. Yeah, that's uh, the how's, how's Harry Reid holding up, holding up a vote? Uh, he's arguing that he's got enough people to filibuster this thing uh, so that it never comes to a floor vote. And apparently he does. Uh, there, there was a vote today, uh, as we speak, in the House, uh, but the House doesn't have any real power over this. It's just a resolution, a show of disapproval of this deal, and they also uh, voted to continue the sanctions. But again, they have no real power in this thing. These are just res- resolutions just to let the American people know where, Rep- where Republicans stand. The bottom line is, uh, Republicans uh, traded away any kind of leverage to stop this deal. This is going to happen. Uh, in my opinion, Iran is going to get a nuclear bomb. And the question is, now what? Well, let's let's hope. Let's hope. And, you know, and I and I, and I, I hate to make make a show so much about my sister, but I spent the whole weekend with her last week. Last week, she's here from Pennsylvania. And uh, and I asked her, my sister and her husband are very Jewish. They care more about Israel than they care about the America. And and I said, and I heard um, somebody on Fox say that, you know, the majority of American, the American Jews support this deal. And and I said, they do. And I, I sent a text to my sister. I said, where do you stand on it? She goes, she thinks it's dangerous for 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 Israel. And I said, so with that, are you will you admit that your vote for Obama was a wrong was a wrong vote? She goes, I'm counting on the Congress voting it down. And how, how can they do that? It took it to the U.N. first to make it. Well, a, yeah. I think, yeah. I, well, 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 they, they won't they won't vote it down. And, and you are right. Most American Jews are Democrats. Uh, most Democrats support this deal. Most American Jews support this deal. Uh, and um, uh, I, I was talking to uh, Rabbi Shmuley Boutea the other day, uh, who is uh, a Republican uh, uh, conservative uh, reform uh, Orthodox Jew, uh, and he is livid at, uh, at, at Jews in the, in the country for supporting this deal. And he says that people like uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, although, again, she's in the House and therefore won't have anything to do with this deal, has come out in favor of the deal. And he says that uh, Jews in America are primarily leftists first, progressives first, uh, and they care about Israel to the same degree as non-Jews on the left care about Israel, which is not very much. The the support for the Jewish uh, for, for, for for Israel uh, in this country is coming from the Republican side, and there's not a single Republican candidate uh, who is in favor of the Saran deal. 
And the reason, primary reason, is because they feel that it is a direct threat to Israel and a direct threat to us. They're working on Iranians, these intercontinental ballistic missiles, not to get, not to get Israel, but to come after us. But uh, most Jews in this country, again, are liberals. Most of them are both of the Democratic Party, uh, and most uh, Democrats uh, who are Jews are supporting this deal. Even um, uh, Chuck Schumer uh, in New York, who supports, uh, who opposes the deal, did not come out until he was tactically certain that his opposition would not stop the deal, so that he would not be accused uh, by the Democrats of affording this deal. So even he did it in, in, a, in a fair, in a, in, to me, in, a, in a, almost a, a cowardly way. I think my, in my opinion, and you can tell me if uh, you differ, is is there's so much there's so much uh, um, alternative alternative intentions or alternative what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, so many so many different 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 uh, agendas, alternative agendas going on out there that you can't trust anything, and that's why everybody's pushing the the non politicians, and I think. There, I think at the end we're gonna we're gonna put somebody in there that we think has the has the has the guts to just put their foot down and get the get the rest of the Republicans on their side, rally everybody to to radically change what's gone on the last eight years. I, I think you're right, and, and I and, but I don't think it's all that complicated. Uh, look at the economy. This has been the worst recovery in living memory. This president will, will be the first president to reside over a recovery where not one year we've had 3% GDP growth. Uh, the average recovery has been 3%. Ronald Reagan was, been, was 4%, which is twice the growth that we're having right now. And people are livid. The top 1% have done extremely well because interest rates have been kept artificially low. So people that, that have investments, that are investing in real estate uh, for investment purposes, are doing extremely well. But the middle class is barely back, and the black middle class has lost about 20 to 25% of its net worth. Income is down. The so-called wealth gap between blacks and whites uh, has not been this wide in 25 years. The labor force participation rate, the real metric uh, on how many people are working for the black community, uh, hasn't been this low since 1977. And for black men, uh, it hasn't been this low since they've been measuring. And so even among the 95% of black people who supported Obama, they are getting the shaft big time. And Donald Trump, according to one recent poll, Ed, is getting about 25% of the black vote. That's five times what Mitt Romney got. And how do you and, – and does that mean that we should put uh, Ben Carson in there because some of the – most of the black people that are not doing well don't pay attention and they're only going to uh, vote by skin color, which a lot of people admit that they did the last two elections? I, I don't believe that that at all. Uh, Obama is a first of all a left wing progressive uh, uh, semi socialist Democrat. Uh, blacks, unfortunately, are left wing semi socialist Democrats. Remember that Barack Obama, when he ran for Senate, ran against another black man named Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes is a, is a conservative Republican, culturally culturally conservative, uh, and also fiscally conservative, conservative, and he got crushed. And there are lots of other examples. Uh, Lynn Swan, the former USC star and uh, Pittsburgh Steelers star, ran for governor in Pennsylvania, didn't get the black support. Michael Steele ran for Senate in Maryland, did not get black support. Ken Blackwell, uh, a black man who was the former Secretary of State of Ohio, ran for governor, did not get black support. So just because you're black, you're not uh, going to get black support. But I do think Ben Carson is different because he's talking to black people. He's going to Harlem. He went, out, went down to Harlem, went into the streets and talked about the implosion of the black family, talked about the fact that in 1965, 
Uh, 25% of black kids were born outside of wedlock. Now, Ed, that number is over 70%. Why? Because of progressive policies that have essentially uh, encouraged black women to marry the government and black men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. I haven't heard anybody, black or white, go to the inner city and say this kind of stuff except for Ben Carson. And so I think he will do better with black people, not because of his race, but because of his ability to speak directly to them about them uh, and about what's really going down. I love Ben Carson. I got to meet him uh, last October, and the first words that came out of his mouth, other than "thank you," were uh, were I don't I I can't be political. No, I'm trying to think how he said. He said he said political correctness is destroying our country. So I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna not worry about uh, political correctness. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say things how how they need to be said. And right. I was I was I love that guy. I I I'm completely behind him. I'm completely behind Carly Fiorina. When I've heard her speak, and I think she's she's awesome. Um, Trump. The only thing I like about Trump is he's so strong. He's so strong. Uh, comes out that way, and I don't think he'll. I don't think he'll. I don't think he'll take any crap from the from the from the idiots out there that. That one that he, he I don't think he'll of course either does Obama so I'm not I'm not uh I could go I could go any of the ways but I think Trump Trump uh, shot himself in the foot this week with some of the stuff he said about uh, Ben Carson some of the things he, oh he's not even he's not even that good of a doctor I think he was like right. I think he was about as good of a doctor as as there are in the world well Donald Trump reminds me of that movie one of my favorite westerns the good the bad and the ugly uh-huh. uh, the good the good is what he's talked about immigration he's gotten that uh, as a center issue. Uh, and uh, while he's uh, talking about deporting every single legal alien and then allowing them to, uh, to apply for readmission, I look at that as aspirational. I look at that as saying, look, I'm going to be the guy to secure the borders. I'm going to be the guy to stop this catch and relief. I'm going to be the guy to stop these sanctuary cities. I'm going to be the guy to cause people to revisit the 14th Amendment, which has been, in my opinion, incorrectly interpreted by the Supreme Court to allow uh, illegal aliens to have children on American soil and have those children uh, be deemed American citizens. At least he started that debate. But then you have the bad, and the bad is uh, where he says things like, uh, well, uh, uh, single-payer could have worked in this country 15 years ago. It works well in Canada. It works really well in Scotland. No, it does not. And the ugly is where he says, well, as a rich person, I wouldn't mind paying more taxes, as if uh, not taxing rich people is the, is the primary problem in this country. Uh, everybody's overtaxed. The country is way too large. Government is way too big, too intrusive. We ought not be talking about raising more taxes. We ought to be talking about reducing the size of government and therefore reducing the number, the amount of taxes necessary necessary to run it. And so Donald Trump has done some interesting things and some good things, done some bad things, and done some ugly things. So the jury is still out on him, as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. You got to. You have any? We have a Trump Carson Fiorina. We got about a minute left. Well, what do we? Uh, what what's your how's your how's your feel on Kasich? I think I'm he's. Sorry? A, how do you think? How, oh, do, you, Kasich. how do you feel about Kasich? Well, uh, uh, John Kasich. It's, 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 it's interesting. You would have thought that uh, somebody like John Kasich, uh, who's in a very important state, Ohio, for Republicans to win. There's never been a Republican that's that's won without taking Ohio. You would have thought uh, that, uh, given the fact that he's done well there, uh, the state's done well economically. He's gotten a lot of black support. You would have thought that he would have been an automatic, uh, uh, if not front runner, at least a frontier runner. Same thing with Scott Walker. Here he is, a governor of a blue state. Uh, he stood down the union, survived the recall election. No one's even talking about this guy, nor are we talking about the former governor of Texas. It really is an outsider's 
uh, a year right now, and I think it's because of, as I said before, the economy, and because so many Republicans, uh, voters feel that the get-along, go-along Republican Party has rolled over and played dead for the Obama agenda, and they've been outfoxed and outmaneuvered uh, by a much more crafty uh, Democratic leadership. So we need fresh blood. So I think that's what Kasich's problem is. But uh, it seems to me that he ought to be, that he ought to have been in a normal year, Ed, uh, a viable candidate. Absolutely, I love I love uh, Scott Walker. Read, read his book. Uh, Kasich, I think, came across as a Democrat in the last uh, debate, and uh, we're we're about out of time for uh, for this show. But I'm anxious to to hear you and Dennis. Uh, with your with your review of what happens Wednesday night, I'm anxious to hear you guys on Thursday night, and I'm anxious to 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 have some time to to uh, munch on some munchies with the VIP thing before beforehand on Thursday night. It sounds good. Looking forward to it. Okay, Larry. Hey, thanks for coming on the show once again, and uh, we'll see you on Thursday night for everybody who doesn't have tickets. AM five ninety the answer dot com, and we'll see you out there Thursday night. And my Twitter is at Larry Elder at Larry Elder. Okay, so uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing Larry out there Thursday night. Okay, coming up on the second half of the show, uh, seeing as this is a nine eleven weekend, I'm going to play the tribute show that I did for uh, that I did. A, I, I think I that Dan and I created this what eight years ago, seven years ago. Well, this is almost, this is almost eight years I've been on the on the on the air. So uh, it was seven or eight years ago, whenever the first nine eleven that did this show and uh this is i've gotten great great reaction from this so uh it's it's a combination of clips and and interviews and movie pieces and uh music that i put from a combination of a whole bunch of different sources and uh it's a half an hour of memories enjoy it send me your comments and uh, right after we split for some uh, for five minutes of traffic and weather and, and traffic, uh, we'll be right back with uh, part two of the main event, which will be my 9-11 tribute. I'll be back again, and I'll be back with my regular show next week. I think we're going to have to remember September 11 in its reality, much the same way as we have to remember other horrific events in our history, because somehow I think it pushes the human consciousness toward finding ways to avoid this in the future. But if you, um, if, you, if you censor it too much, if you try to find too many euphemisms for what happened, then I think you rob people of the ability to actually relive it and therefore motivate them to prevent it from happening in the future. This is Ed Hoffman, and welcome to the September 11th edition of the main event. This week, in honor of September 11th, I put together a tribute to September 11th, consisting of some clips from uh, documentaries, interviews, uh, speeches, as well as uh, some movie clips and some music, too, to commemorate the day that changed our country, changed our world, and for many of us, changed our lives. Uh, I, lost a, I lost a high school friend on Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon that day, and uh, my wife and I have visited ground zero, ground zero several times since 2001. So you can bet that we will never forget the impact that the attacks of that day had on our lives and our world, and I hope that you won't either. 
this project took a lot of time and effort to put together, so I hope you enjoy listening to it and find it moving and inspirational as I did in the process of creating it. Um, email me your comments at edhoffman at wccloans.com. That's Ed Hoffman, E-D-H-O-F-F-M-A-N at WCC Loans. I'm interested in, in what you think. Enjoy. On a perfect, almost achingly beautiful late summer morning in early September 2001, a day of seemingly infinite visibility, one man later said. Characterized by the rare and exquisite flying conditions airline pilots call severe clear. Life in New York and much of the rest of the contemporary world was changed irrevocably in the space of less than two hours. September 11, 2001 was the worst day in the history of the city. Everyone in the city should remain calm. The very best thing to do right now would be to remain home. I could see from the very beginning with the number of casualties and the tremendous damage that was done. And even the thought that we'd probably be attacked again during that period of time. That this was this going to be really, really difficult. I'd ask the people of New York City to do everything that they can to cooperate, not to be frightened, to go about their lives as normal. Everything is safe right now in the city. And the people who are doing the relief effort need all the help they can get. At 9.02 a.m., little more than 15 minutes after the attack, millions of people in the metropolitan region and tens of millions more across the country and around the world were staring intently at the smoldering skyline of lower Manhattan when a dark shape appeared on the horizon above the New Jersey lowlands and came hurtling across the upper bay. And then all of a sudden, I saw a big explosion of fire. And at that point, we all concluded, obviously, it was, it was, a, ter- it was a terrorist attack. I think that was the first point at which I realized that we were into something different than any, any of us had ever prepared for, or any of us had ever thought we would live through. I realized I was in some kind of a horrible, awful, horrific human experience. I hear people say... We don't need this war But I say there's some things worth fighting for What about our freedom And this piece of ground We didn't get to keep them By backing down They say we don't realize The mess we're getting in Before you start your preaching, let me ask you this, my friend. Have you forgotten how it felt that day to see your homeland under fire and her people blown away? Have you forgotten when those towers fell, we had neighbors still inside? The resolve of our great nation is being tested. But make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. God bless. I don't know if you guys know it yet, but this country's in war. Listen, I'm not, I'm not taking any more chances. we got stuff flying around we have no control over. And I don't want to board full of these planes hitting every building on the East Coast. This is a national emergency. Everyone lands regardless of destination. 
That's going to cost billions. That Just do it. We have hundreds of international flights coming in. They're already in the air. No, no I, don't, I don't want any more international flights crossing the borders. They don't have to go back where they came from. Nobody's coming into the country from now on. Everyone? Everyone. Shut off the East Coast. Shut off all the international from Europe. Shut off South America. Shut off the West Coast. Nothing over the top either. Canada? Yeah, Canada too. Shut down the airspace. I can't accept anybody. Nobody takes off. Take a moment. Think about this. We're going to put. We're going to shut down the entire country right now. That's right. Listen, we're at war with someone, and until we figure out what to do about it, we're shutting down. That's it. We're finished. This was an attack intended to destroy us, because we are a country that's built on principles of freedom, and because of free will, people get a chance to distinguish themselves. This wonderful American. Civilization emerges, which isn't based on any ethnic group. It isn't based on any one race. It isn't based on any one religion. It's based on people believing in freedom. We heard things hitting the sidewalk, and I thought it was debris. And I think we all thought it was debris. And the windows on the west side of the building had already been blown out. So as I walked towards those windows, I realized it wasn't debris. These were people—people people who were so desperate that they had jumped from whatever stories. And they were landing, and it was a, a constant—the shrill of the pop as they hit the ground. And think about people so desperate that they would—they would choose that—that that way to die. And they had to know they're going to die. There's no way of, of surviving. And that—that that image will never leave. A mother described to me talking to her son on the telephone when the second plane hit, and that's the last time she talked to him. Another family described to me how their Loved one had let two elevators go because he was older, and the people in the elevator were younger. And somehow, my, my my mind went back to the stories and the things you read about the Titanic, or you know, people who allowed other people to get on get on boats, and they didn't get on the boat because they were older. And from that moment on, I started thinking that we'll never know all the heroes. We know our uniform people were heroes. They went there. And they died, and they gave up their lives bravely, trying to save the lives of other people. But what we don't know are all the individual stories of the person who gave up the elevator for another person, the person who calmed someone and got them out of the building, the person who organized their floor so that everybody could evacuate, the person who maybe at the last, in the last moments, comforted people when all of them knew they were going to die. We've got over 300 firefighters that are missing that、uh, we can't account for. We believe that many of、uh, many of them are are, are, are gone. We don't.、Um, we'll keep looking.、Uh, we have hundreds of people over there now trying to find as many possible locations that they might be in in some way in a void or whatever, and、um, you know still be able to breathe and and still alive. But we believe that、uh, most of these people, I think, are, are going to be.、Uh, Unable to to pull out. Pastor, I gotta go down there. Where? New York. You can't. Only emergency responders are being allowed in. I spent my best years with the Marines. God gave me a gift to be able to help people to defend our country.、And、I feel Him calling on me now for this mission.、And、then find a way to listen, Dave. And I started thinking about the people that might be trapped. Are there people trapped? If they are trapped, can they survive? And I remember 
thinking this, I, this is like being in hell. Today is uh, obviously one of the most difficult days in the history of the city and the country. The tragedy that uh, we're all undergoing right now is something that we've had nightmares about, but probably thought wouldn't happen. My heart goes out to all of the innocent victims of this horrible and vicious act of terrorism, acts of terrorism. And our focus now has to be on saving as many lives as possible. What's the status here? Search has been called off. This whole thing is crap, man. Our guys are in there. They're dying in there. Looks like God made a curtain with the smoke, shielding us from what we're not yet ready to see. Do we know the number of casualties at this point, sir? I don't, I don't think we, we really want to speculate about that. The number of casualties will be more than any any of us can bear, ultimately. And I don't think we want to speculate on the number of casualties. The effort now has to be to save as many people as possible. United States Marines, anyone can hear me, yell or tap. Some of the information was too brutal. I think I said that day that I don't think people could handle the full implications. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that best husband was Terry Haddon, who was, the, who was the captain of Rescue One. And I looked over and I said to her, Is, was Terry working today? And she said, yes. And his tears came down her eyes. She looked at me and she said, he's dead. And I got angry. I said, you don't know that, Beth. You don't know that. And she said, yeah, I know that. I felt it and I know that. I was standing on the steps of City Hall we all looked up, and I knew that Terry would have been one of and one of the, the highest floor that he could get to in that building, because that's just what his company does. And when I saw the building come down, I knew that he had no chance. His friend Tim told me that he saw Terry going in, and Terry said to him, "We may not be seeing each other again," and kissed him on the cheek, and ran up the stairs. We lost all those firemen. We lost police. We had this fantastic contradiction of people who hated you so much that they were willing to give up their life to take yours. And people who loved humanity so much that they were willing to run into the Don building in the smoke and flame and just to save the life of somebody they never met. And that ineffably beautiful there's no better definition of love there's no there's no more inspirational no more inspiring no more near to saintly conduct that you can think of than what they demonstrated we, everybody should in their own way say say a prayer and ask god for help and for assistance and uh and also ask god to give us the strength to overcome this because i know we're, we're going to need strength to overcome it and i want the people of new york to be an example to the rest of the country and the rest of the world that terrorism can't stop us. American democracy is much stronger than a vicious, cowardly terrorists, and we're going to overcome it. If you can hear me, yell or tap. We hear you. Ah! Keep yelling. And <coughs> 13, BNPD down. Gotcha. Hang on, hang on, okay? Don't leave it. We'll be here a long time. We're not leaving you, buddy. We're Marines. 
You are our mission. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's great. He took all the footage off my TV. Said it's too disturbing for you and me. It'll just breed anger. That's what the experts say. If it was up to me, I'd show it every day. Some say this country is just out of looking for a fight. Well, after 9 11, man, I'd have to say that's right. Have you forgotten how it felt that day? See your homeland under fire and her people blown away. Have you forgotten when those towers fell? Still inside, going through a living hell. And we vowed to get the ones behind Ben Laden. Have you forgotten? I want you all to know that America today, America today, is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here. For the families who mourn, this nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Chase Stadium served as a staging area for rescue supplies. And the New York Mets baseball team, overlooking its exalted status, banded together with other volunteers. We got a, we got a box of T-shirts here. People came in from Wall Street who had walked home, and two days later, you know, I need to do something. I have to help. What can I do? I had that same feeling that, that so many uh, other Americans had. of just to, I needed to do something. The Yankees, too, pitched in. Following the team's first post-9-11 gathering, manager Joe Torrey led a group of players on a goodwill trip downtown. We went to the armory, which was the most emotional, and we didn't really know if we should be there. This is where families were all gathered to wait on word if their loved ones were alive. weren't alive, uh, evidence that they weren't alive, so they were doing DNA samplings. I, I remember one very poignant moment when Bernie Williams went up to this woman, and he was sort of fumbling, and he, and he says, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. He says, but you look like you need a hug. And he put his arms around her, and I, and I think sort of broke the ice to see that, you know, these people needed this. And I think at that point in time, I realized that there was a role for us. But I'll never forget where I was, and I'll never forget that day. And I remember taking a bus home at night, about 11.30, at Amsterdam on 116th Street. 
and how quiet the street was. There was an eerie silence, like nothing I'd seen in more than 30 years of working there. And then I remember when the bus came that there was a sign around the little box there that said, no fare today. And I remember sitting on the bus, sitting opposite a young woman who was just crying. And I remember when I got off the bus at 83rd Street, she was still crying. I remember just putting my hand on her shoulder. And I said nothing, and she said nothing, and I got off. But I'll always remember that woman. We have to cry, and we have to mourn, and we have to feel terrible and awful. And on the way over here, I cried in my van because I had to go to the morgue to identify some. But I, the tears have to make you stronger. Every time you cry, you have to remember that we're right and they're wrong. In the aftermath of September 11th, the mood of the country changed. Baseball games became communal gathering places for fans to express their emotions. And as much of the country turned a sympathetic eye to New York, the Red Sox ask you to join us in a tribute to the spirit of the people of New York. The city's baseball teams became the objects of affection. I could not, under any circumstances, ever imagine cheering for the Yankees. But I think America's sense of New York changed in September 11th and, and the days afterwards. The face of New York changed. It was 343 New York firefighters who walked into the fires of hell to save strangers. And it becomes very difficult to hate the Yankees. Another reason for the heightened security was the appearance of a guest from Washington. All of a sudden, there was a knock at the door, and President Bush walked into our room. Well, when you're president, all you have to do is say you're showing up, and they kind of ask you to throw out the first pitch, no matter what time of year it is. So I go underneath the Yankee Stadium, in the bowels of Yankee Stadium, and there's a hitting cage there. And he's wearing his bulletproof jacket, and he's getting his arm loose, and Derek Jeter comes up to him. So I just asked him if he was going to be throwing the first pitch from the mound or in front of the mound. The president said, I don't think I'll throw from the base of the mound. Jeter said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mr. President. And I told him, uh, you better throw it from the mound, otherwise you're going to get booed. I said, this, this is Yankee Stadium. I said, okay, I'll throw from the mound. And he's walking out, and he looks over his shoulder, and he says, don't bounce it, they'll boo you. All of a sudden, the pressure mounted. The president of the United States. I'd never felt what I'd felt before when I walked out of that dugout. I felt the raw emotion of the Yankee fans. USA! 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 The crowd just erupts in a chant of USA. There is nothing like it that I've ever experienced at a ball game. It, it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming. President Bush is standing out there like a brick wall. I'm not afraid of terrorists. I'm going to stand all out here. I'm going to give you a thumbs up, and I'm going to throw a strike. I didn't vote for him, but at that point, my personal feelings about him as a politician is gone. I watched him, and he was my representative, and I had never felt that way before. 
Very nice throw, Mr. President. Good stuff, good stuff. At that moment, everybody there was there for baseball and to show the world that in spite of what can happen to us, we'll pull ourselves together and what is our life and our way of life will continue. United we stand. We stand together in the face of this threat. We will play baseball in the midst of the, the beginnings of this war. No matter what the threat may be to us, the United States of America will stand strong and will never be intimidated. Have you forgotten all the people killed? Yes, some went down like heroes in that Pennsylvania field. Have you forgotten about our Pentagon? All the loved ones that we lost and those left to carry One of the tricks in life is to convert everything into good. You're a sculptor and you have a stone and the stone has a scar in it. And well, so now you have to sculpt around that scar and you've got to use that scar to, to make it part of whatever it is you're going to produce that's beautiful. And um, work with what you have, play it as it lies, you know. So whatever the circumstance, you know, use it for a good purpose. 9-11, how can you possibly use it for good purpose? You think about it. You think, as uh, we've suggested before, you think about, look, what this reminds you of is the importance of your own life and making the most of it because you, you can lose it in a flash. And if that's all you learned from 9-11, if that's all you remembered, that, my God, you could extinguish life so suddenly, so unexpectedly, and it could happen to me, and therefore I should think harder about the way I spend my life instead of just wasting it. Now, it's not going to teach you what to do with your life, but it will teach you to do with your life. Thanks for listening to the September 11th edition of the main event. Email me your comments at edhoffman, E-D-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, at WCCLoans.com. My name is Ed Hoffman, and I'll be back with my regular show for you next week. God bless America, land that I love, stand beside
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.